welcome to the Torah Law Review podcast series. Today, we are speaking with two uh, wonderful professors in the areas of legal writing, um, Professor Tracy Norton and Professor Tessa Dysart. Um, I'm going to introduce both of them, give you a little background about them. Uh, Professor Tracy Norton teaches at Toro Law School. Um, she and I have worked together for a long time um, and it's been wonderful. She primarily does teach in the area of legal writing and legal education. And um, she is known nationally, uh, she is known internationally and she's best known for her research and presentations on cross-generational competence in legal education and the legal profession. Um, she has contributed in many ways to the areas of of legal writing. One of them is the Lexis Interactive Citation Workstation um, that you may have all heard of in the past. And currently she also has been, she, she's also been interested in disaster law. She does a lot of wonderful things here. And currently she's been focused a lot on online teaching, um, especially during the pandemic and thereafter, which we'll hear a little bit about in a, in a few minutes. And Professor Tessa Dysart is the Assistant Director of Legal Writing and Clinical Professor of Law at the University of Arizona. And she also serves as the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Appellate Practice and Process, which she acquired by the University of Arizona Arizona Law in June 2020. Um, and she writes and speaks nationally on appellate advocacy issues. Um, and so we are so excited to have both of them here today. And the primary reason they're here today is because of their latest work. They are co-editors of the book, Law Teaching Strategies for a New Era beyond the physical classroom. Um, they co-edited this book. It consists of many entries, many chapters written by professors all over the country, um, contributing to many sections about their experiences with working online, teaching online, and what everyone has learned and how we can move forward in this world that we are now in and how we can move forward well. So um, it's, with great pleasure that I'm introducing both of them. And I'd like to get right into asking them a little bit more about the book and about their thoughts and about what they've learned. So I'm going to start by asking, what inspired you to put this book together? And Tracy, I'll start with you um, about what inspired you. And Tessa, please chime in when Tracy's done, I, I, if you have anything to add. So that would be great. I'm actually gonna throw this one back to Tessa. Um, since uh, Tessa was actually the one who had the inspiration and was kind enough to bring me in later. Thanks, Tracy. So I, I should start with that I was the anti-online teacher. Um, unlike Tracy, who's been doing a lot of online teaching for a long time, I had taught my first online class, um, I think it was in 2017, and I hated it, and I thought it was just ridiculous. But when the pandemic started, I was actually in the process um, pre-pandemic of creating an online class for our law school. So I had sort of changed my ways, thought I would give it a try. And as we transitioned to pandemic teaching, I was noticing what a stark difference there was between my planned, prepared online teaching for this class that I was creating and the craziness that was pandemic teaching. And as the summer started, I started hearing, you know, all these news stories about how students hate online teaching, how it's not effective. I saw comparisons of K through 12 education with 
graduate and collegiate education. And I thought, this is silly because I know there's a real difference between what I'm doing in my planned class and what I had to do during the pandemic on a weekend's notice. And so I thought the future, you know, this pandemic is going to be a real shifting point in legal education. And the future is going to include more online teaching. And we were already moving that direction just very, very slowly. And so I wanted to put together a book that um, didn't really justify legal educate online legal education, although I think we do that a little bit in the book, but served as a template for professors, for students, uh, for administrators, you know, moving forward and creating online education. But I knew I couldn't do it alone. And so I started thinking, who can I partner with to help me on this project? And Tracy came to mind as someone who I knew was very involved in online teaching. And so I, I approached her and she agreed and we put together the book in basically record time. Um, one other thing I'd like to note about this book, and I think most people are shocked when they hear this, Tracy and I have yet to meet in person. So um, I was actually at a conference recently and I, and I said that to someone, they said, really? And I said, yeah, really. And I think this book um, itself demonstrates the future of online interactions and that we were able to put it together in record time and still yet have never met in person. Great. I had no idea you never met in person either. And, and who would know? And you're right. We, and we do need it. You know, just speaking from my own experiences, I think we do need a template. I think this is great. I think now to have a resource where we can turn if we have any questions or we just want to improve, that's just fantastic. So great. Um, Thank you for that. I, I'm glad to know your inspiration. So I guess the next question that I think people are thinking about is really what's the future now of the profession? So the future of law schools, if we're going to keep it just limited to this arena, um, you know, with online teaching, what's the future now that we can do it now that we know how to do it? Are we going to use it? Or should we? Shouldn't we? What, what do you think the future is? So maybe Tracy, you want to start with that one? Sure. I think the future of legal education is definitely going to include online learning. I, I'm feeling in the last, you know, since August, when we went back this year, um, a, a little bit of a pushback. And it, it feels like the pushback almost gets a little bit stronger um, of some professors and some students saying, um, you know, now that we can go back in person, we should just go back in person and let's just, you know, leave all this online behind. And at the same time, the reality is that we are not leaving it behind, that even in the in-person classrooms, for example, um, at Toro, for example, we record everything on Zoom now. And so the first thing I do when I walk into my classroom is I log into Zoom um, for a class that is completely delivered in person. And so I use um, aspects of online learning in my physical classroom courses. So I log into Zoom. Um, my students often log into Zoom also because I no longer just share my screen for a screen at the front of the room that the students, and I'm gesturing behind me because that's where my screen always is. Um, it's no longer just a projected screen at the front of the room. I now share my screen with all of the students so that if they've got their laptops with them and I encourage them to have them in class, 
that they can see my screen share on their screen right in front of them. And so there's no more squinting. I can't see it. Can you make that bigger? Um, so there's, in that way, the online classroom has become part of the physical classroom. And then in addition to that, you know, when my students are out sick now, they'll email me in the morning and say, I know it's still an absence, but can I log into Zoom and, and follow along with the class? And I think that's fantastic. If they're, you know, if they're well enough to do that, that's great. So even though I, I hear pushback, the experience doesn't seem to be pushing back. People seem to like a lot of what they experience with online education. And so I think what we're going to see is uh, varying amounts of demand for um, online elements in the physical classroom, as well as synchronous online courses um, that don't have a physical classroom element, and then um, some asynchronous courses. Although, you know, I'm always quick to point out, and I think most of us have have figured this out over the last two years, that an asynchronous course requires a level of student discipline um, that I think takes a lot of students by surprise or did take a lot of students by surprise. I think a lot of students understand that now. And so they're self-selecting for asynchronous versus synchronous learning. But um, I think it's definitely here to stay for legal education. And then um, I'll let Tessa answer about the profession because we had a conference um, in, um, uh, at the same time as the launch of the book, and we had a practitioner's panel in which we had judges and practitioners talk about what they believe to be the future of the profession. Yeah, I'll start with saying two things. I think it's important to realize if we look at the legal profession as a whole, there's, I mean, there's many trends we see. One is to diversify the legal profession even more. And one is an emphasis on more practical skills. And I think online education really helps answer both of those concerns. So if you, you know, do a quick Google search, um, you'll see that St. Mary's in San Antonio was one of the first schools approved for a fully online JD program. And St. Mary's has one of the most diverse student bodies in the country for law schools. And so allowing students to live where they're at to meet their family ob obligations, to maybe have a full or part-time day job and do online law school is a, is a great move towards diversifying the, um, law, the legal profession as a whole, but also giving students more practical skills. So this would allow students to, for example, do an internship on, um, in a remote part of the country, you know, maybe working on a reservation in a remote part of the country where there isn't a law school and still take doctrinal classes remotely from their home law school. So I see this as a great opportunity for our students. Um, but I also think it's something the profession is going to expect. So increasingly, I see remote only jobs popping up in my email, you know, apply for this job, remote only, remote only. So employers are hiring students and expecting them to have the skills to work remotely, um, which I think are, are different skills than you would have to work in person. And I see other legal uh, skills being done remotely. So I, I had a post recently about online oral arguments. I see online oral arguments as being something that will be a part of legal education moving forward. So even when I return to the in-person classroom, 
I expect my students to do at least one remote oral argument because they'll be doing it in practice. So part of doing online education is teaching our students to operate in this increasing online world. Yeah, I think it's great that you point out that that what we're doing and what what we were forced to do during the pandemic is actually now serving as what will really be in practice in the real world for the students and the sooner they're used to dealing with it, the better. Um, and I, I just wanted to point out many schools, not just Toro, but Toro included, have programs where they have evening, uh, where students are working full time. We also have other programs where they're flexible, where students don't always live right in the general vicinity. And to have the options to be online, just like you said, Tessa, it really does give you know such a diverse such a diversity to, to the amount of people to the people who can enjoy the program and be part of it and not be exhausted after work i know it must be very difficult working full time and then going to school at night and to at least be able to be in the comfort of your own home or stay later at work and not deal with the commute i could think of a million reasons but um it does it's nice to hear that those actually are going to be in practice as well so thank you for that so I guess I want to turn it to what can we learn? So as professors and as students, but let's start with the professors. What can we do to make sure we're doing this well and make sure, how can we learn to make sure that we're doing a good job, that we're actually getting through to the students? How do we know? How can we be better at this? That's a deal of me. How can we be better? Well. We start from a place of um, online legal education is not just legal education with a computer. And I think um, a lot of the pushback that I heard um, and have heard over the last 10 years has been about imagining what your physical classroom would be like online. And what, I, what I've heard from colleagues um, you know, at institutions across the country is how silly it is to think that you could do the wonderful things that you can do in a physical classroom online. And to a large extent, I agree with that. I don't think that duplicating the physical classroom is an effective way to teach online. There are things that we can do online that we can't do in the physical classroom and vice versa. And so I always start from a position of you take a platform that you have available to you for a course, whether it's the physical classroom, an online classroom, or some combination of the two, and you think about what you're trying to accomplish, and then you sort of back your way into, okay, how am I going to do this? You know, starting with the platform, thinking about your goals, and thinking about what can I do with the platforms that will help me achieve those goals? Um, and that's one of the things that I'm uh, probably proudest of about the book is that there are, there are four distinct sections and the second section deals entirely with just moving things. Well, I won't say moving things online, adapting education to the online platform, whether it's fully online or a combination of online, physical, and asynchronous, and using the platform to its, uh, to its best advantage. And so we have one section that's just about really backwards designing those courses, thinking about what you're trying to accomplish, and then using the platform to do that. 
And then the next two sections, three and four, deal with using that design um, schema specifically in first year courses and then specifically in upper level courses and things like internships and clinics and um, seminars. So what was the question? <laughs> um, it was really, you, you've been answering it actually, just about how we can be, I, I was starting with professors, but I'm also thinking about students, but how we can be more effective, better online. Is there anything we need to do? But I think you were answering it by saying, you know, start yeah. thinking about where you are. Are you online? Then we work with what we have online. Are you in person? Then we work with what we have in person. I know I can speak about Zoom, you know, those breakout rooms. Who would have ever thought that would be as convenient as it is, but it was so wonderful to put students in little groups when in person, yeah, they can get up and move, but they're getting up, they're moving, they're tripping over wires, they can still hear each other. You know, it was not, oh, it's, it's, it's doable, but it was, you know, even easier, if I might suggest that, uh, you know, on Zoom, where you just put them where you want them, and that's where they are. But you were, you were answering that uh, so thank you. And maybe Tessa, you wanted to add to that and maybe you wanted to talk about how students can be better learners online, but. Yes, I did. Thank you so much. I think it's important to, to reflect on the fact that legal education hasn't changed significantly in a hundred years, right? The, the Socratic method is um, something that has, has been around for over a century and maybe it's not the right approach for, for all legal classes. I like to joke, I have two little kids, so we do a lot of laundry in our house. And I like to joke that, you know, I don't do laundry the way I would have 100 years ago. So why should I do legal education that same way? Um, increasingly, our students and the ABA want more formative assessments, more interaction, more practical skills. You know, I see us moving to how legal education was done 200 years ago, which was the apprenticeship model where you read law under someone. And so I think part of moving online is rethinking in general how we do legal education. And these online tools offer fairly low stakes, easy to do, easy to reuse formative assessments for our students. But if your view of online teaching is giving a lecture for an hour and a half on Zoom, you know, that's not a great way to do online education. For our students, um, and this will sound a little bit uh, like, a, it's definitely a pivot from what I was just saying. For our students, um, I think we need to talk to them about how online education may require them to adopt some non-digital solutions. We have a chapter in the book on this that was really profound for me when I read it, that if you're taking an online class and you have one screen and you have a digital textbook, you have a Google document open that you're working on, you've got your Zoom lecture, you've got your chat, and you've got your notes, that's five demands on your one single screen. And so for our students, I think we need to talk about, well, maybe online education means you buy a paper copy of the textbook, or you take notes by hand, you know, depending on the course, or you think of, you know, getting a second screen or a second device to use, you know, in the class. Um, but it's also important, I think, for law schools to realize that online education can reveal some inequities. So I'm very fortunate. I have a, and, and this cost us a lot of money during COVID. I have a home office that I can shut the doors and sit in and teach without, you know, small children or cats um, bothering me. And that's, that's wonderful. And I'm very fortunate to have that. Our students don't all have that. They may not have a space where they can 
sit and quietly participate in class or be free from distractions or even have a consistent internet uh, connection. And so I think as we move online, our students, we need to both teach them how to be online students, which again may require uh, non-digital solutions, but then also think about um, inequities that may arise and have places, you know, for example, in our law school, maybe more study rooms in the library that students can reserve and sit in for online classes where they'll have reliable internet and a quiet place to study. So it involves rethinking, um, you know, how we do education and rethinking how students learn and, and where they learn. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Those are very good. Those are great answers, great things to think about and really um, just something that many of us haven't even thought about um, in the past who would think they need few, possibly fewer digital options in the digital world, but it, it does uh, make a lot of sense as, as you explain it. Um, so another question I, I have and I've been asked and I've, I've had the experience with is the introverted student. So when you have students who are shyer or just quieter, just not the ones who are ready to uh, you know, be visible, um, how can online platforms help them or do they help them? And if they do, how can they continue to help them? So whoever wants to take that. Oh, I'm gonna do that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so this is one of the things that I really love about um, the options that we have online platforms, because there's not really a way in class for an introverted student or a very shy or quiet student to sort of subtly motion to me that there's a question and then you know have me come over and they whisper it in my ear. But that's exactly what you can do in an online class. And so while we always want to be mindful that it is legal education and ultimately all of our students have to be able to um, to speak up and advocate and um, and overcome some of that shyness for some of the students, um, particularly in the first year when they're becoming acclimated to the tradition of advocacy and the need to be able to stand and speak in front of an audience. It's good for them to have a way to reach out and start to gain some confidence by asking questions and making comments where it's low risk. And I think, I think that's a lot of, um, that's a theme that we're seeing in legal education, particularly in first year. You know, with formative assessments, we're talking more about low risk formative assessments where students can get feedback and take a risk on exhibiting their knowledge or exhibiting their skills um, without that high stakes, you know, final exam being the only way to do that. And I think that um, things like the chat function um, also add some low stakes, low risk ways for students to start to build their confidence, particularly in that first year. So I love the chat function because students can ask me questions um, privately, or they can, there are some students who just have trouble hearing their voice out loud until they get used to that. So there are some students who are perfectly happy to ask the question in the chat box in the public chat, and then others who really are afraid that they're going to look like they don't know what they're doing or they don't belong in law school. And so they wanna ask a private chat question. 
And so things like the chat are things that I've actually tried to replicate in the physical classroom. It's harder to do that. I initially tried to do it with the Zoom chat function um, and I found that a little unwieldy. So I'm still looking for some of those solutions because I found that part of, um, uh, I found that part of online education so incredibly valuable. Um, one of the things that I was doing before the pandemic was using uh, whiteboards, using little um, whiteboards where I would have students write an answer to a question and they would all hold them up and reveal at the same time. Um, and that's also a popular online tool using the chat, having students type in their answer and then all at once they hit, um, you know, enter and all of their answers post at the same time. So sort of everybody's taking the same amount of risk uh, at the exact same time and it's not one person at a time doing that. And so um, I sort of thought after the pandemic, well, I'll, I'll be done with those whiteboards. And once I discovered that issue with chat, how unwieldy it was to use the chat in the physical classroom, I've actually gone back to the whiteboards again. And so that's another example of, you know, the digital, um, sort of the digital format or the digital functions requiring in the physical classroom a non-digital solution to sort of make those happen. So um, my whiteboards now have become the chat function. And it's, it's such a good example of, like you said earlier, using what you have. So if you're in the physical space and you can, then you use it. If you are in the digital world and you can't use a whiteboard, you do have that chat function, which isn't as difficult to monitor if you're all in the same platform on the same platform so oh great that's good to hear and so you know i i have a, I have a question for each of you i i guess i'm gonna start with tessa because you're you're next because tracy i'll you know this way it's like alternating a little bit but um it, it's basically the same it's a similar question but tessa i wanted yours to deal mostly with clinics and how clinics can benefit from an online format and then i'll get to tracy about oral arguments after that because i think it's good to address both of them so tessa if you don't mind just tell us how clinics can benefit from being online we actually have a couple chapters in the book about um clinics and how clinics can use the online format and some of it is undertaking representation that may be far away and so, um, you know, looking at, for example, native communities that don't have local lawyers who can service them, clinics can represent these clients from far away. Um, others, and, and there's a great chapter about building a, a partnership between Yale and the San Francisco District Attorney's Office um, that again, allows students to participate on matters from far away. I, I think there's great opportunities for clinics for reviewing written work. Um, so putting it up on the screen, getting in a Zoom meeting, and going line by line to review you know, different writing projects. And there's also great ways for students to meet and conference cases in the online format. Now, online trial work um, is a challenge. I think online oral arguments are probably a little bit easier to do than online trial work. But I, I think we will see some online trials or online aspects of trials, even if the full trial isn't done online. So thinking about how we can use online formats for our clinics, I think again, is you know, practicing how we're going to serve our students or in the future, how they will practice law will be using some of these online formats. So being mindful about the technology is incredibly important. 
Yeah, it's a great experience. Uh, thank you. And Tracy, with oral arguments, I was just thinking, I know legal legal writing classes, we uh, use them every year. Uh, we, we do oral arguments every year, but there are other classes in the school. You don't have to be a legal writing professor. I know I've heard of con law professors having their students do oral arguments. I've heard of criminal law professors. So it happens in, in so many of the classes. And so how can they use the online platform to help them, anyone who is doing an oral argument, let's say as part of a classroom exercise? Well, it, I mean, the obviously um, things like Zoom and Microsoft Teams make it much easier to do those arguments because everybody gets their own little square on the screen. And so um, I think before this all happened, we imagined that an online argument, you know, we didn't have those options of all the little, all the little squares. We were imagining something like a Skype call, which would be uh, significantly more difficult. W one of the things that came out of the conference um, uh, that, that we launched in conjunction with the book was in the practitioners panel, um, some of the judges, and this surprised me a lot, um, spoke to the fact that they don't anticipate all of the motions practice going back to in-person. That they, there was at least one judge who said that he anticipated having at least one docket day, I think a week, um, be online because you can no longer justify to clients, you know, sort of the cat's out of the bag that we don't have to fly across country um, to do a docket call anymore um, and just register an appearance. You can do that on Zoom. And so judges are, I think, more willing to facilitate this than they have in the past because they understand that it doesn't serve clients to have to pay for that. Um, so, I think more of motions practice is definitely going to be online. And I think most of the oral argument that lawyers do, as long as it doesn't involve, you know, questioning witnesses and, and arguing to a jury, I think most of that is going to slowly migrate online or maybe even quickly migrate online. And so, like Tessa was saying earlier, it's really important that we train our students to argue online and doing an argument online, students discover pretty quickly when they do one, it's not like just sitting in a Zoom class. Um, it's different than the other things that they do online. I have teenage and uh, early 20s children and they do a lot of things online. They chat with their friends online. They play video games together online. They watch movies together online. They do a lot of those things online. And sort of like, um, like Google searching, students uh, for a long time have thought, oh, I know how to do online research because I use Google. There's a similar thing that happens with um, online arguments. Just because you spend a lot of time with an online presence doesn't mean that you know how to argue online. There's still things, you know, there's decorum that you have to learn. And um, so we're going to move more of that online as, uh, as the practice demands it. And, you know, there's really no reason you can't do it in, like you were saying, in every single class, there's no reason that you can't designate like one day as, you know, this is going to be argument day. And so we're not going to come into school that day. Um, and of course, that gets significantly easier if professors 
who share students coordinate. Um, and we did that at Toro, I think probably about 10, seven to 10 years ago, Michelle, yeah. um, you know, where we would coordinate everyone who taught on Fridays would agree Friday's going to be online day. Um, and we would all hold our classes online. And so that's that sort of thing where we coordinate an online, maybe online argument day in every class um, can help to train students for that. I want to pop in too. I think there's really great opportunities then from our students to learn from a diverse group of individuals. So I teach an intramural moot court class and we had three presentations to the students. One was from one of our graduates at the well-noted um, Arizona appellate attorney. And, and he's in Phoenix and he zoomed in. He could have easily driven down and he has before, but Zoom was easy. They also heard from a former appellate chief from Maine and a Georgia Supreme Court justice. I don't have the funds to bring all these individuals in in person, but I can bring in a great panel of individuals to talk to my students using Zoom. The other thing, and I think Tracy talked about this a little bit with the a little bit of Zoom fatigue as we've come back in person. And I think it's important to separate, just like we separate pandemic teaching to planned online teaching, it's important to separate the we're all ready to be back to normal versus what's the future of legal education, right? Of course we want to meet in person. Um, I don't think anyone disagrees with that notion that we want to see people, to hug people, to talk to them, you know, and there's this real effort to go back in person. So we have to separate that like immediate desire from what we really want the future to look like. And as gas prices soar, I, I can only imagine what they are, you know, where you all are, and um, they're already getting high here, to six, seven dollars a gallon, I think online education offers other, you know, instances and, and telecommuting for attorneys to avoid incurring some of these costs. I'm so glad you brought that up. And I, I just want to echo that we're not only is it hard to get funding to bring so many distinguished people in, but those distinguished people may not have time in their schedules if they have to go in person and they're much more likely to say yes to an online appearance for an hour or an hour and a half rather than finding time in the schedule to leave what they're doing and to get to where and reschedule everything. So sometimes it could be done during a lunch hour. Sometimes it could be done, you know, during times that are more convenient for them. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. And all of this has been extremely useful and helpful. I have one final question and you don't both have to answer it, but if you'd like to, you're welcome to, and then we can, you know, wrap up a little bit, but I just wanted to ask about, because a lot of people wonder about what about the students who receive accommodations, whether they're testing accommodations or any other type of accommodations and how this, you know, this new era, this new world, how are we going to focus on them and make sure they receive the accommodations they need? So you guys, you could fight it out. I can say a couple of things and then I'll let Tracy um, finish. Actually, testing accommodations are super easy to do on Zoom. Um, well, Maybe I'm saying that because I have my learning management system in my mind, but most learning management systems allow you to specifically give students extra time to complete quizzes or other assignments. So I know our learning management does that. I'm sure that other folks have that same opportunity. Um, I do think there's more challenges in terms of making sure videos are captioned and um, there's you know opportunities for students to to be able to participate in, in class that way. So there's certainly accommodations that need to be made when creating online classes. 
but I'll give one other benefit for our students who are non-native English speakers, which again is an increasing proportion of the student body. Online education, especially videos with captions, offers them a lot of opportunities to improve their English. Um, and I was talking about this at you know at a conference recently with some friends, and they said, "Yeah, you know, my students will watch the videos multiple times because it's helping them improve their comprehension of English." So I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, I think with accommodations, you know, first of all, the Americans with Disabilities Act has been incredibly helpful during. Um, online learning because it has required that, you know, unlike, unlike traditional legal education, which was designed without disability accommodations in mind, online learning was designed in an era where disability accommodations are ubiquitous and, and should well be. And so we've designed online education over the last few years in particular with disability accommodations in mind and so we are we we are thinking more from the beginning about testing accommodations in terms of not just the time which i agree um you know we use the canvas uh, learning management system and that makes disability accommodations with regard to time incredibly easy um but other things like having students be in a, a quiet environment sometimes that's one of the accommodations. And so we're thinking about those things from the inception of widespread uh, online education in ways that we didn't with uh, traditional legal education, simply because accommodations were not something that came into being until, you know, well into uh, the tradition of legal education. Those are great points and Thank you so much. I, I just want to say this has been so interesting. Congratulations on this book. I wish you the best of luck as it continues. It's been receiving wonderful press and I hope and, and assume it will continue to um, receive wonderful press. Again, the name is Law Teaching Strategies for a New Era Beyond the Physical Classroom. There is a photo of it, beautiful. Um, and these are the two editors, Professor Tracy Norton and Professor Tessa Dysart. Um, thank you both so much for being here. It's been a pleasure speaking with both of you and wishing you the best of everything. Mm -hmm.